when I carried a bag, and one of the reasons why I think I had an 88% win rate was I asked every customer after every deal, why did we win? Why did we lose? Yep. And even when we That's won, what could we have done better? What were the gaps? Where could this have gone sideways? We always look for themes to emerge. We always look to address mm-hmm. feedback. And so I don't know that I necessarily believe you learn any more or less from winning or losing. I think you learn different things. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Win Rate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Eric Stein, and Eric is one of my guests on this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. Eric is a senior technology executive, and at the time of our recording this episode, he was the chief revenue officer and chief commercial officer for Skillsoft. My other guest today for this roundtable discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates is Tim Hughes. Tim is the founder and CEO of DLA Ignite, a business transformation consultancy based in the UK. He's also the author of a best-selling book, Social Selling, Techniques to Influence and to Influence Buyers and Changemakers. Now, I had the chance to read Tim's book last year before interviewing him on my old podcast, and it is a really excellent book for sellers to learn how to break through the noise to reach out and engage with the modern buyer. Now, a few quick items of business before we jump into today's discussion. First, if you're interested in getting even more actionable ideas about how to elevate your sales effectiveness, please subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. And not surprisingly, each Wednesday, you'll receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates. To subscribe, visit my website. That's andypaul.com. Second, enrollment's now open for my next session of my Buyer Experience Bootcamp. Now, it's starting September 5th. Now, this Buyer Experience Bootcamp is a group coaching program over a five-week period that teaches you how to elevate your win rates by delivering the buying experience your buyers actually want. Because how you sell is how you win. So, for more information and grab your seat in this coaching program, go to andypaul.com slash bootcamp. That's andypaul.com slash bootcamp. Okay, if you're ready, well, let's jump into the discussion. So today my guests are Tim Hughes and Eric Stein. And Tim, give us a brief overview about you. Yes, I've been in sales for 25 years. You can tell from my accent, I'm not from your side of the pond. Oh, really? Um, And I've written three books. The latest one is Social Selling Techniques to Influence Buyers and Changemakers. Yeah. I think, believe we talked about that on a previous podcast. We have done, yes. Yes. And Eric Stein, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, it's so hard to follow that introduction. I've also been in sales for 25 years. I haven't written three books. I've read three books. Two of them were yours. <laughs> one was Tim's and one was yours. And I love what I do. I have a huge passion for salespeople. I have a huge passion for serving customers well. I think it requires really great people with empathy and substantive information and trust to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled to be with you again, Andy. No, great. Yeah. Glad to have you again. Gosh, I tell how long I've been in sales. (laughs) Let's see. This will be my 46th year in sales. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Think about that. That's a lot of experience right there. Yeah. And still learning something new every day. Right. And that's the key thing though, isn't it? Yeah. That's one of the beauties about doing a podcast is previous yes. podcast, we did 1125 episodes and figured I talked to over well over 900 really smart people. And yeah, I always think doing a podcast, is such a selfish thing to do because I get more out of it than I think anybody else does. Yeah. I run a podcast and for me, it's, I meet so many amazing people and I always learn stuff. 
It's, it is just so beautiful. Yeah. 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 Was, yeah. Transformative for me. So, okay. We're going to jump right into it and sort of following along with the theme of the show is we'll start with you. Eric, okay. Is if you know, what's your career win rate? What's my career win rate? Yeah. I have no idea what my career win rate is. I know what it was as a sales rep. Or was a sales okay. rep? Tell us. My win yeah. rate was 88%. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I was very blessed. I really loved what I did. But the funny thing is, it's the losses that stay with you. Right at the very beginning yeah. of my career, oh, absolutely. I was selling into higher education. And mm-hmm. the very, very first account I lost after like 10 wins in a row was the school where my parents went to college and met each other. And like when we started that sales engagement, there was this huge emotional appeal about being in Burlington, Vermont and where my parents met each other. And that was simply not enough to carry me across the line. (laughs) But I also really learned through that engagement that having won in the past and using those references as credibility, having a connection to the place and using that story for connection wasn't enough. The reason that I lost Mm -hmm. that deal was actually because I had won the 10 before it. And when the customer said to us, you know, we're not institution A, a big, well-renowned top 10 institution. We're not institution B, a big, world-renowned top 10 institution. What kind of resources are we going to get? How are we going to know that we're going to get the same level of service? I didn't have a good answer. And it really Mm -hmm. taught me how sometimes your greatest strength can be used against you. And so I've used that as a lesson with sales teams for years that sometimes the thing you think that's going to get you the win could be the reason that you lose and you just need to be prepared for every question you're going to get from a customer. Absolutely. I just wrote about this on LinkedIn not that long ago. It's this idea is, you know, we train sellers to tell prospects, you know, as a former social proof, well, you know, we worked with a dozen companies just like yours. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And what the buyer is hearing is, well, well, we're not like everybody else, right? You know, we're unique in the way we do our business, the way we think about it. Our culture is unique, you know, whatever. And so as soon as you say that, you're being told, well, that's social proof. What they're hearing is, yeah, they don't really understand me. They don't really get me. And everybody says they're unique, yeah. even though they're not. My, you know, my background is selling accounting systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's actually only one way to do accounting because there's, there's rules and regulations for it. But you go into every organization and they all say, yeah, we're yeah. different. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that. Otherwise, yes. they feel like they're not being heard. And what you're yeah. really saying is you need to understand our problems. You need to understand our yes. culture. We need to know that we're going to get a level of attention that makes us feel like we are your only customer, even though we would never think of buying you if we were your only customer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's such a, such a common error. And just, yeah, you know, every day you can listen to a recorded call and hear a seller do that, make that mistake. And just doesn't mean they're not going to have the buyer continue to talk with them, but something's changed in the mind of the buyer. There's a, I was reading an abstract about of a research report done about the use of AI and medical decision assist systems. And because AI sort of been used there for a long time. And there's studies showing that there's, yeah, fairly good adoption of it. But at some point, the patients stopped trusting this AI based system, even though it'd be giving it good advice. And when they dug into it, what they found is, the patient said, well, yeah, you know, my pain is different than other people's pain. 
you know, I'm more sick than other people or I'm sick in a different way. And the machine just doesn't understand me. And it's a real eye-opener, right? Is that you think, okay, well, AI is really going to help in all these dimensions. But at the same time, as people said, look, I'm unique. Whether they are or not, in their own mind, I'm unique. You need to acknowledge that. And if you don't, you know, I could get my business. I think that's a very human reaction. You know, Andy, you write very eloquently about the human side of selling, but your customer needs to be seen. They want to know mm-hmm. that you see them as an individual company and a collection of individual people who are trying to work together to solve a problem that they feel is specific to them. And so having done it before, having done something like it, only helps if you can explain that in the context of how you see them and yep. how their particular explanation of themselves is landing. Yeah. I think there's I think there's two <laughs> things that's starting to happen in sales, Andy. Which is that there's there's a, a view that basically AI is going to do it all for us, hmm. and you know we joke, you know, well, okay, that's great. So you want to talk to me as a from a as a customer? Well, talk to my chatbot, and and then when you finish and you want to sign the order, then come back to me. You know, there's also this other view that actually we're as humans we're social, and what we want to do is that we want to form relationships and have conversations mm-hmm. with people, and. You know, I'm already seeing complaints about, you know, I've been sent another sh- stupid, you know, you know, chat GPT is just increasing the amount of spam we're getting. Right. And where, and we, and nobody wants it. And everyone, you know, you see article after article on LinkedIn about, we just don't know, we don't want this stuff. And, you know, I think there's a, people are crying out for human centricity and conversation and relationship. And even I'm using the word relationship and it's, oh, you can't use that word in sales. Well, connection. They want a connection. Yeah. And that's what we, that's what we want as buyers ourselves. And so, yeah, I think that, I think people are crying out for it and they want human co- contact. Oh, I agree. And I think this whole idea that, yeah, we can completely automate this with AI and so on. Certainly there's a layer of products that's going to apply to, and that's great. We're already seeing that, you know, on the online anyway, you know, certain products more transactional. But what it requires actually talking to a human is, yeah, the humans could be better than your chatbot at making those connections. And, yes. and people want that. And I think that's always going to be the distinction. That's why I think I say, you know, the, the future of selling is actually more human, not less, if you want to succeed. Well, that goes back very much to what we were talking about this morning, Tim, and the whole premise behind social selling, which is to be authentic, to start a conversation about a real topic or a real problem that people are addressing and not just pitching a product, which feels very yeah. forced. Yeah. Yeah. No one likes being pitched. In Andy's book, he talks about a cognitive, and I always forget it. What was it? And what's it called? There's a cognitive thing in our heads where we basically, we get pitched to, we have a fight or flight oh, yeah, reaction. Yeah, persuasion reactance. Persuasion. That's it. And, and so, you know, we're enforcing these things on people and there is a, always a fight or flight reaction. Right. And, and what we're looking for is a, is a conversation and a conversation, you know, you know, when something is top of the funnel, we don't know about your company and we don't care about it. And, but what we're looking for, that's the point where there needs to be that human connection. But often in, in conversations, people think, oh, that takes a long time. You know, I've never met either of you two in person, right? Yep. In person. No, in real life. And, but with, but Andy, I've spoken to him, you, we've interviewed each other like two or three times. 
right. we would kind of say that we know each other. And Eric, I just met you this morning and like, we just had a really you know, quick conversation, but I thought, you know, Eric's a really nice guy. Now, it doesn't take long to have a conversation or even a DM conversation. And this is the thing. You can build relationships really quickly. And what people are looking for is that human, that human connection. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Andy, I'm talking and it's you. No, that's, you're supposed to. You're here as a guest. You're supposed to talk. Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, there's voices out in the, you know, LinkedIn ecosphere, ecosystem about, you know, uh, as you said before, relationships aren't important, blah, 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 blah. People just want to get down to business. And it's like, well, sure. You know, people don't want to spend forever on you know, this relationship building, this connection building. But in the absence of that, what do you have? You don't have credibility. You don't have the ability to build trust that come from having that connection. And so, yeah, you can be as businesslike as you want. You know, as people have been talking about, oh, you don't need to be likable. Well, sure. In an absolute sense, you don't need to be likable. Well, there are plenty of people out in sales probably that, you know, do okay that are jerks, right? But What's it cost you to be likable? And when we know from research, and we'll get into some of this later, but we know from research that you know the primary factors that are influencing customer decisions aren't the product, aren't the price, aren't the features, because in their mind, they're all pretty much the same. It's their experience with the seller and the selling company. I agree with you. I well, think once the point has come where the company decides to engage with you, then they have decided that your company, your product, your offering is at least a credible alternative, right? Right. And so whomever they're engaging with, that experience ends up becoming the differentiator. And I want to tie it back to where you opened because you asked me what my career win rate was. Yeah. And you and I have been talking about that topic a lot recently. Right. It came up two lunches ago. It came up in our last lunch. (laughs) And I was thrilled to be on this because as leaders, when you run a, a global revenue organization as a GM or a, or a, a theater lead, as a second line manager running a marketing unit, as a first line manager running a team, there's so much that we look at, right? We want to look at pipe multiple. We want to look at NR expansion. But examining win rate at a business unit level, at a team level, at a sales bag level, and at an individual level, was something that as we were talking, I realized I hadn't spent enough time on. And so I was probably blind to the fact that I had people in my organization that looked like they were top performers because they had a couple of big customers with really big contracts and big numbers against them, or they could grow NRR at double digits because they had that kind of scale. Wasn't evaluating mm-hmm. the reps based on the number of at-bats and the number of times they got on base. And when I started doing that after our conversation, I had a completely different perspective about the performance in my organization, which isn't to say the data I was looking at before was useless. It was like having another instrument in the airplane right. and that I needed that right. instrumentation to tell me something about who's winning the most when they get at bat and why? What are they doing? Is it repeatable? Is it scalable? Is it teachable? Is it coachable? And that has changed the conversation that we have with our first line managers because Mm -hmm. we've taught them to look for that and try to get behind it to understand what the root cause is of 
winning and losing. Yeah, love it. Well, let me ask you a question then along the same lines is you've gone through that exercise. So in your mind, based on your experience, you know, what, what win rate does somebody need to have to be considered a top seller in your mind? So I'm going to caveat this by saying that I think a certain amount of it depends on what your sales motion is and what your company maturity and your category maturity is. Right. Right. If you're in an inside sales business, if you're in a high transaction volume business, if you're in land and span, sure. expand, if you're an enterprise, it's going to be different. And whether or not your category is in a high growth or a consolidation phase is going to make a difference. But mm-hmm. broadly, broad side of the barn, broadly. I've been using the same statistics that I use for pipeline multiple. If you're winning 35% of the time or more, you're a top performer. If you're winning between 25 and 35% of the time, you're probably on average for the category. And if you're winning less than 25% of the time, there's a problem. You're not being trained right. You're not being coached right. I always start with, what are we doing wrong? Are we not giving you the information, the skills, the tools to be successful? And if we have, and we're not moving the needle, then it's, you know, the old saying, it's not me, it's you. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizant's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate, deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. I think you're right, Eric, which is that if you're recruiting people that have already got a track record and they're not winning deals, then it has to be us that's at fault to begin with. We're clearly not giving them something, whatever it is. And usually they know what that is, whether that's, you know, training or support or something. But I also agree with you that depending on where we are, you know, if you're in a, a market where you're breaking ice, it's different from a, a market where you, you may have lots of competitors. We did some analysis at a big company that I used to work for on the pipeline. And there was a billion in the UK, there was a billion dollars worth of pipe in the, in the pipeline. And anything that was in stage one rarely ever got moved. All it did was people just put the uh, claim, change the date for the year, for the financial year. And basically nothing ever happened on it. What closed was the stuff that was put in at sales stage. And there was five sales stages in effect. What closed was the stuff that was in two and three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mainly three. So there was a, when we actually asked the question of the salespeople, what that was, you know, we've gone out, we've met the person, 
There's probably been some sort of demonstration. We're kind of getting a good feeling. Let's put something in the CRM. That doesn't mean that, that, that of course, then what that does is it skews the statistics. Because if you actually, if you went back to the beginning and said, right, okay, what's the close rate? The close rate was one in 10. But if you looked at the figures where people were putting stuff in at, at sales stage two or three and asked the sales leaders, they said the win rate was one in two, and generally it was. Okay. So what you're saying is they're entering in the CRM when they had what they considered a qualified opportunity. Yes. So they've been out, they've met the person, there's been some sort of conversation. You know, you're getting a feel, you know, if, you know, if we're looking at budget authority, need and timescale, there's a view that there's a budget, you're probably talking to the right person. There may be a need, but not a compelling reason. And that there is some sort of timescale of that. Right. Which I think is really the way it should be looked at, right? Is I think one of the things that's that I see happening quite a bit is sellers feeling compelled to put things into their pipeline that don't really belong there. You know, I, I, well, I wrote about my first book. I said, you know, as a seller, you should really consider yourself being like the bouncer at the head of the velvet line getting into a club. And you decide who gets into your club or not, right? The club of who you're going to sell to. And just because they're there and they're interested doesn't mean they belong in your pipeline. Yes, we've walked away from a lot of business because it's not the right business. Yeah. We fired customers because that we didn't want to deal with them. So all of those things can take place. You know, I was just going to say, I think there's also something very human to that, which is if you have fairly good sales reps and they're well enabled, then they are performing that early stage discovery almost unconsciously. And so they are selecting out those that are a bad fit, wrong segment, Mm -hmm. culture mismatch, not good category alignment, customers likely to go somewhere else because they're not getting the level of engagement. And so what they're really telling you is they've already done a good bit of the discovery. They just haven't entered into a system or tracked it in a way that allows you to really understand early stage dynamics because some of that comes to your point, Tim, from the give and take with the customer and that self-selection process that happens at a rep level. But if, but if that's what's happening, Eric, I'll go back to the point you made before about you know, top reps being at 35%. Yeah, I've interviewed a lot of top sellers on, on podcasts. You know, they all won more than they lost. Yeah, you know, there's, I think the barrier for a top seller is you win more than you lose. Again, I come back to how we're looking at growth pipeline dynamic, because here's the sure. other thing that happens, because here's the opposite side of the dynamic that we've just discussed. There are a lot of leads that get misclassified as opportunities. There are a lot of things that sit in stage one and sometimes stage two that are being captured from an SDR doing outbound and MDR doing inbound. And sales reps are inherently greedy. And so when you say top reps, I'm going to twist that to say high-performing reps who win a lot because top reps don't put garbage into their pipeline and they're the ones with the 50, 60, 70% win rate. But I have plenty of sales reps that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world that have win rates of 35, 40, 45%, but they have one bad behavior, which is they can't say no to a lead. They don't have it. Between a lead and an opportunity, or and Tim, you're really going to laugh when I say this because I know your big company background and you know mine. So we've all done this. 
there's some idiot, pardon my language, at the first line or the second line, holding them to some artificial 4X or 5X pipeline yeah. multiple. And yeah, so absolutely. all their early stage, like that's just boss management. That's manager management. Yeah. Well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff in here so nobody dings me on my pipe. Multiple. Yeah. Yeah, when the company I worked for first went into SaaS, someone came up with a bright idea. It was because there wasn't so many, because we were new in SaaS, clearly we needed to, we need to have more activity and we would win, we would win less. Therefore, we needed a 10x multiple. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I'll cut the words beginning with F out. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, say, I think I've told Eric this. You know, the rule of thumb I think you should look at is that you're, and it's not always the case, but just a sort of rule of thumb across your whole spectrum of sellers is that your average win rate will be the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage requirement. So if you have a 5x pipeline coverage requirement, your win right. rate will be 20%. But if you've created an artificial math exercise, and so for me, one of the things I'm experimenting now, and I'd love both of your take takes on it, because this is sort of where this whole conversation about win rate is leading me, Andy. So... Mm -hmm. You told me that my eventual book, if I ever managed to write it, should really be about from account executive to chief executive, right? What's that journey like? Right. And for me, the critical inflection point and where I spend a lot of time as a leader is on first line management, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of success or failure happens based on what your first line managers do. And oh, when absolutely. you bring in absolutely. seasoned first line managers, when you promote people into the role, and when you come, as Kim and I do, from a culture that can't dig into the details, like it's so much easier at a mid cap at three and five and 800 million than it is to do it in a multi-billion dollar business unit that's just looking at pipe multiples and conversion rates. You have to retrain managers how to manage. And so what we're starting to look mm -hmm. at this conversation is, what is the first line manager's overall team win rate? How many total at-bats did their entire team get? And what are they winning? Because right. when you start to say to them, hey, you've only got an 18%, 21%, 9% win rate, and you're changing the conversation away from pipeline coverage to how effective is your sales team at what they're doing, right. then it becomes a force multiplier in the organization. I actually believe the place we need to retrain mm -hmm. the win rate conversation isn't so much the reps, but that first line manager. Oh, 100%. And this is really, I think, worsened, if you go and use that phrase, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the influence of SaaS in some degrees is that, you know, frontline managers have been so activity focused as opposed to winning focused that, yeah, it's you know, not unusual to see in, you know, SaaS and Similar type companies, what I consider, you know, low win rates across the board because the focus of the managers has been, well, shit, I got to report that to your point right. earlier, how, Eric, about managing the boss, show that, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and creating pipeline, even though a lot of it's just crap. And isn't that the always the thing that we're managing as, as salespeople is we need to close stuff, but we also need to be getting stuff to go in the top of the pipe. So we need to prospect and where do we spend our time? And we could, you know, it's, well, you need to concentrate on closing. Yeah. But my management's saying I need five X and that's how I'm being measured, whatever it is. Yeah. Which is one of the themes of my book, Sell Without Selling Out is how do you basically politely and through your actions 
tell your boss to back off. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, you're gonna you're gonna deliver the results, but you're gonna do it in a way that's aligned with uh, your strengths, but also what the buyer needs from you. Create I will say in my own defense, I'm a three time CRO or chief commercial officer. I have never once instituted a pie multiple metric for precisely the reason that you articulated. And I worked for a wonderful right. guy who's now the CEO of a big fintech firm in Europe who made 11 years ago impressed upon me the point that whatever your pipe multiple is, it will have an inverse relationship to your win rate. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing. I was fortunate to work for people that I remember asking the boss once, you know, what's our pipeline or you know, multiple should I have? And he says, yeah, whatever you need to hit your number. <laughs> and that was, oh, okay. That's good advice. And for me, that was, yeah, I generally ran 1.5 throughout my career and I was selling big stuff, but that's what worked for me. And it's, yeah, you know, somebody else may need three, somebody else may need four. But I think one of the problems we've had is that increasingly, and to your point, Eric, about frontline managers, is the pressure they feel is tendency is to create or treat everybody sort of, everybody's got to be this way as opposed to cookie, cook, cookie, cookie cutter. Cookie as cutter, as yeah. To, yeah. Let me help you be the best version of yourself. And let me, you be the best version of yourself. Instead of saying, oh, no, it's the process, it's the methodology, we're going to be slavishly adherent to it, and I can't be blamed if we follow that and we fail. It wasn't me. Well, in their defense, I think that so many organizations flow so much downhill to the first-line managers. They are hit with recruiting, performance management, OKRs, and that's the meaningful stuff, and then a ton of sales plays and spiffs and policies and I wasn't blaming them. I was it's just saying the it's the reality of what, you know. Well, and so, let me phrase on my favorite surf, hypothetical situations is, you know, we spend, I think LinkedIn was saying, we spend anywhere from 15 to $20 billion a year in the U.S. on sales training every year, which I'm willing to estimate that maybe 10% is spent on training managers and the rest on sellers. What if we flip that ratio? What if we spent 90% of that training dollars on training and enabling frontline managers and 10% on sellers. Sort of a hyperbolic question, but it's the point is we have to invest in frontline managers. I absolutely agree. So much of the training we do for sellers, I like to use the metaphor, it's like pouring water into a full glass, right? Sales are down, give them more product training. Yeah. Sales are down, give them more customer training. It's like, that's not what we want. We, you know, we so, so, or, or you get the or you get the attitude that you know, you you go out and recruit the best salespeople and then people just say the salespeople are idiots. Like, no, they're not idiots. They're doing the best they can with what they've exactly. got. Right. I think that, I think there has to be, we still need to train sales leaders because we still have the situation where we take the best salespeople and make them um, leaders and quite often they're not leaders and they have to learn how to deal with people. But what I've seen is that there's a, there's been a big change in the marketplace because a lot of the old school places where you learned to sell yellow pages, advertising, those sort of things right. in magazines and newspapers have all gone. Right. So the, so, you know, the places where if you were looking at a, a salesperson's CV and saying, okay, does this person know how to sell? Have they got a process background? All of those places, the yellow pages and the recruitment places that used to do that don't exist anymore. So we're recruiting a lot of people into roles and they don't actually have the skills to do it. So it's down to us. It's our responsibility. It's back to the, what are we doing wrong if they're not performing? 
Now, a message from Alego. If you want to save money on your sales tech stack, but don't want to sacrifice productivity, then you need Alego. Alego's modern revenue enablement platform provides everything you need for effective onboarding, coaching, product launches, sales content management, and conversational intelligence. You'll be able to consolidate up to seven different tools and save on software spend while improving adoption. There may not be a more efficient way to do more with less. Alego's platform is unmatched in driving alignment across sales, marketing, and enablement teams, and will increase your ability to leverage peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, quickly source content and messaging insights from the field, and increase learning engagement and retention. So don't let too much tech hinder your team's performance. Demo Alego's revenue enablement platform today at alego.com forward slash demo. That's alego.com forward slash demo. And now a message from Closed. There's a cheat code to revenue growth. You hire Closed to simply ask your buyers what you could do better to win their business. If you talk to enough customers, you eliminate all the guesswork around what products to build, how to consistently outsell your top competitors, and even how to retain your most unhappy customers. The simple practice is like using a metal detector to find buried treasure in your business. For example, when Closed customer noticed a pattern in his Closed One buyer interviews, Customers kept saying, we totally would have paid more for this product. So this revenue leader took action. He increased prices by 30%. And you know what? They didn't even see a drop in their win rate. That's an immediate increase of 30% in your revenue. So improve your win rates, unearth win-back opportunities, and discover other revenue hidden in your business with direct, candid feedback from your buyers. Here's how Closed can help you get started. Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So visit winlosstoolkit.com today. A perfect example of this is, you know, huge growth in... SDR roles, you know, outbound phone, you know, cold calling roles. And yet we have, you know, a generation of workers coming into the workforce that didn't grow up. Nobody answers the phone. Don't even use a telephone. Yeah. So it's like, we can't assume they know how to do this. We can't assume they know how to make that connection. I don't even know why we call these phones anymore because we don't phone anybody. I don't talk to anybody on this. Well, my wife, that's about it. (laughs) Uh, Well, my partner, we just text each other, you know, so... Yeah, I don't talk. We don't, heaven, they're not mobile the phones then. anymore. Or no, cell, I'm trying to talk American. Cell, what you call them? Cell. You don't. They're not cell phones. Are we just calling phones now? Okay, right. I okay. Because <laughs> no one has a, no one has a landline anymore. No. Do you know anybody has a landline? No, I actually do. Okay, that's, well, that's only because Virgin Media won't take it out. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we told I'm them sorry. we don't want it anymore, and they said it'll cost us so much money to get rid of it. Actually, just keep it and don't pay for it. Don't. Well, when we advertise, this will be part of the show notes for this episode. Dude, if you can get Richard Branson to listen to this podcast, I would be so jazzed. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We'll have to think about that. We're owned by Liberty now. So, um, Pledging Media owned by Liberty. So, Oh, well, American company. There you go. All right. A question I want to ask you is, and this is back to Eric, you talked about before about, you know, we all remember those big deals we lost, right? I remember one in particular. I was selling to one of the major American networks where it was the first digital backbone of distribution of programming for 
their radio network. So they had 4,000 radio station affiliates and we had the greatest, newest technology and we thought we were, we'd worked the account really well. But we weren't the incumbent and the incumbent basically bought the business. But we should have known. We should have known. We should have known earlier. We didn't talk to the right person that we should have talked that would have. It was just devastating. It was a great lesson, right? Because we had, it was a big deal. We were a small company. It was, you know, one that, you know, a difference maker. But, yeah, there's a real lesson there to be learned. But it's sort of the question is, and I've been reading about this, is so do you think, you know, I was talking about win rates and winning is, do you learn more from the deals you lost or the deals you won? So I am going to avoid the tyranny of the or in that question. I actually think oh, okay. that it is a false choice. I okay. When I carried a bag, and one of the reasons why I think I had an eighty-eight percent win rate was I asked every customer after every deal, "Why did we mm-hmm. win? Why did we lose?" Yep. And even when we As won, yep. what could we have done better? What were the gaps? Where could this have gone sideways? We always look for themes to emerge. We always look to address Mm -hmm. feedback, particularly if it was thematic. And so I don't know that I necessarily believe you learn any more or less from winning or losing. I think you learn different things. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question. That is, is so you've got this global sales Mm -hmm. revenue team, you know, responsible for, do you encourage or institute that discipline yes absolutely we you cannot close a record in our crm without a win-loss report um we rec- mm-hmm. and what's so on the we report? ask whether or not you won or lost if there was a competitor who you lost to so we can track competitors we ask for mm-hmm. a reason and we actually ask that they had some form of documentation from the customer an email or a text that they had a conversation and provide a quote as to why, um, could we want there to be a conversation there? We want to show that we are cognizant of right. caring about why we earned the business or why we did it. And so that's very much, and it was something new that I instituted when I came on board, but it means a lot to me because yeah. in today's world with companies acquiring and divesting each other with people moving around from role to role, everybody is potentially your your next customer on your next deal. Mm-hmm. And just because yeah. you didn't get on base at this at bat doesn't mean you won't in the next one. Yeah. I think it speaks to the values and the culture of a company when you do that, when you ask. Yeah. Do you find, Eric, therefore, that that, creates uh, something more downstream in terms of if we if I know as a sales rep I've got to justify why I've lost a deal does that force me to therefore to do more qualification because at the end of the day whenever you run any pursuit you're burning through resource not just your time but resource within the organization and you know we've all seen reps just basically throw resource at stuff hoping that if we throw it for enough mud at the wall it will stick by justifying why we lost, does that enforce more discipline going down so, the street? I don't know, but I have a hypothesis. 
And it actually ties right. back to some of the work that we're doing now to look at first line managers, teams, win rate, and what the distribution is. Do they have a couple of big winners and a couple who are average and a couple of big losers? Is it weighted in some way, shape, or form? Is it completely random? And what are the reason codes that go with the win-loss when we look at the win and loss right there? And Andy, it goes back to your point about manager enablement. So mm-hmm. as you and Tim both know, I worked for a very big company for a long time. And we had a spring tradition that I kind of miss this time of year. You know, we'd have our Q4 and we'd wrap up in December and all the miracles would happen and the big deals would come in and you'd pull stuff forward and you cleaned up everything you'd been working on all year because all the marketing spend happens in the first three, four months of the year before marketing's budget gets cut at mid-year and then travel gets cut and then the hiring. Like you could say, marketing would get cut in July. Um, uh, Travel would get frozen in August and hiring would get frozen in October. And in December, you'd clean it all up and you'd start in January with a new budget. Of course, there's nothing left in your pipeline and you're trying to scrape together a quarter with like $82 deals and anything that you can, you're running the compliance reports on every customer. You know, and inevitably March happens and then you, everybody gets called into headquarters for what I used to affectionately call the April ass beating meeting. I, can I say that on the podcast? Mm-hmm. I, we'll put the E yeah, on sure. it. You said it yeah, explicit. Yeah. 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 And I used to hate these meetings with the workshops and the lists of ideas and 90% of it never got an action, but I always went because I always got one thing out of that meeting. I got money for manager enablement because mm-hmm. manager enablement is like a hurricane or a wildfire. Nobody wants to pay for prevention, but once the storm hits, mm-hmm. they'll pay for the cleanup. And so yep, I ran a manager absolutely. enablement event every May. It was the May managers meeting because of the April last meeting when I went to get the money for it. The only other effective way to get ongoing manager enablement is to have a discipline like this where you can sit down and show your managers why are you winning or losing. And so what I love about now looking at the win rate data to go with the win and loss codes and the reason why is, yes, Tim, to your point, as sales professionals, our only cost of goods sold is our time. But I believe that there is a slice of that that is valuably spent on losing and finding out why or taking the time after you've won to find out why because make us more effective overall. Here's an interesting bit of data. It comes from our partners at Close, who does win-loss analysis. And they're saying, based on their data, that Close-lost reasons put into CRM by sellers align with the reasons given by buyers only 15% of the time. <laughs> and then it's like, rah, rah. <laughs> Can you see how the... A real different perspective, which I, I think this is, you know, eye-opening, not that's terribly surprising, but eye-opening nonetheless, data about just how misaligned or a seller serve in their own universe when it comes to why did I win or lose versus what the buyer says. Really the happened. funny thing was when we started requiring that they provided customer evidence of a conversation, the reasons yeah. changed because product and pro- yeah. sales people love to say it was the product or it was the price. Right. Yeah. Those yeah. dropped both each dropped by more than 50% once we required customer evidence. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, Randy, I'm not sure if you're interested in this. I did some very 
unscientific research at a big mm-hmm. company that I worked at. We had a sales team of 66 and we had seven that always made 200%. Right. So we did something very unscientific, which was ring the people up and say, why are you doing 200% and then learning from them. So why are those people, what were they doing or what did, what did they do that was different from the other people? First and foremost, they all had over 200 contacts in each of their accounts. Well, that weren't making the number only had less than 10. Yep. You know, they'd have big stacks of business cards and stuff. What are those? Business oh, cards. Okay, your, dad yeah. will, your, your dad will tell you about them. Okay, yeah, thank you. And the second thing was, and this may surprise you, was that they all, because it was a big company and there was lots of training available, they all went on training every quarter. The people that didn't make the number all said they didn't have time for training. The, not surprising. The third thing was that whenever you gave them a, a, something to do, like, can you update the CRM? They never complained. All the people that, that didn't make the number, and most people only made 50, 55, 65%. Right. All of those people complained they didn't have time. I, time. I like that. I like that. That's probably a great key indicator right there. And as, as I said, it was totally unscientific. It was just a case of, um, I've, it was a long time ago. So I, there was a couple of sure. others, but I can't remember what they were, but it was totally unscientific. And it was just basically phoning people up and finding out what it was that was different about them. Yeah. No, I like this. I like this. Very interesting. All right. Well, gentlemen, we're coming to the end of our session. So, hey, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. So much Great fun as always. And so if people want to connect with you, Eric, LinkedIn, what's the baby. to do that? LinkedIn, baby. And well, Tim, I'd be surprised if you said anything else. LinkedIn, baby. There we go. Appreciate you stopping by and look forward to doing it again soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Tim Hughes and Eric Stein, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Win Rate Wednesday. Each Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to accelerate your win rates. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.